begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show praying the Canticle of Tobit from Tobit chapter 13. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Praise the Lord for his goodness and bless the King of the ages so that his tent may be rebuilt in you with joy. May he gladden within you all who were captives, all who were ravaged may he cherish within you for all generations to come. A bright light will shine to all parts of the earth. Many nations shall come to you from afar, and the inhabitants of all the limits of the earth drawn to you by the name of the Lord God, bearing in their hands their gifts for the King of heaven. Every generation shall give joyful praise in you and shall call you the chosen one through all ages forever. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to a special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we're going to be celebrating summer today, sharing with you some great conversations with great guests on themes and ideas related to this season, because... As we always like to say here on the Sunrise Morning Show, our Catholic faith is meant to touch and inform all aspects of our lives. And so that would definitely include things like recreation and vacation time. So hope you can stick around and enjoy the entire hour ahead. It's going to be fun. Let's jump right in and get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Meg Hunter-Kilmer. She's online at piercedhands.com. She's author of the children's book, Saints Around the World, from Emmaus Road Publishing. And she is a self-proclaimed hobo for Christ. Meg, good morning. Good morning. So, Meg, not, for those who are, are not familiar with you and your work, can you remind us what you mean by being a hobo for Christ? Yes. So I am a missionary and I live out of my car. I don't have a house or an apartment or a storage locker. I drive all around the country and fly around the world telling people how much God loves them. So I've been on the road for nine years now, all 50 states and 25 countries. So it keeps me pretty busy. And it's for this reason that I thought you would be the perfect person to talk about road tripping like a Catholic this morning and you've got a blog post on this if listeners are interested in reading more it's about visiting every saint and blessed in the united states you can find it at her site piercedhands.com so can you tell us a little bit more about this pilgrimage where did you start you know i was i just sort of happened to be in toronto and if you want to set out to actually visit them all you are going to put a lot of miles on your car because our saints and blesseds are pretty well spread out. Um, but if you're in the Northeast, you can do quite a few of them in a, in a fairly close area. So my favorite pilgrimage spot in the United States is in Orysville, New York, which is right near Albany. And it's the place where St. Isaac Jogues, St. Rene Goupil, and St. Jean de Lalande were martyred. But it's also the spot where 10 years after their death, 
St. Kateri Tekakwitha was born. And so it's just a really beautiful sense of the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when you're, when you're at this shrine, it's, a, it's an outdoor area. So they've got some indoor chapels and an indoor church, but they don't know where the bodies are of these saints. They know that St. Isaac Jogues buried St. René Goupil in a ravine. And so you can go down to the ravine, and it's this incredible sense of sacredness where you say, like, somewhere in this spot is the body of a saint. And we may never find him, but just knowing that these woods are blessed by the presence of these relics and seeing the way that that manifested itself in the holiness of St. Kateri, it just it gets you really thinking about these unsung saints of our church and the way that their lives sanctify different areas in our world and make it possible for us to be holy as well. Yeah, consecrated by the blood of the martyrs. And let's stick with New York, but but head further south, down toward New York City. Who do we visit there? So you can go and see St. Francis Xavier Cabrini in uh, Upper Manhattan. I believe there is a parking lot. So that's a perk. (laughs) In New York, it certainly is, yeah. Exactly. When you want to get down to St. Patrick's, you can visit Venerable Pierre Toussaint. It's a little bit more complicated. Parking isn't going to be easy. Um, And then you can go down to Staten Island, and you can visit a couple of Servants of God. Uh, Servant of God Dorothy Day is buried down there, and Servant of God Vincent Capadano, who was a Marine Corps chaplain in Vietnam. Um, So these extraordinarily varied images of holiness. All right. So let's move from New York to New Jersey. Who do we meet in New Jersey? You've got Blessed Miriam Teresa Demjanovic. She was born a U.S. citizen into a Byzantine Catholic church, um, but ended up entering a Roman Catholic religious order. Just a very simple, unnoticed sister, except by her spiritual director, who realized that she was incredibly holy. And so he actually had her anonymously write a series of retreats for the other sisters. She's like a 23-year-old novice, and she's the one giving retreats to these 80-year-olds, but they don't know it because father's reading her reflections out loud. And she ended up dying at 26, and the sisters didn't really know what they had lost until her spiritual director shared with everybody who this woman was, and they saw just her incredible holiness in the midst of being totally content to remain unnoticed. That's so cool. And she is in what's known as Convent Station, New Jersey. Now, just over the border from New Jersey is Philadelphia. And of course, there is a rich history there. Yes. uh, We've got St. John Neumann, also called St. John Newman. It's sort of debated how we're going to choose to pronounce it in this country, uh, was a bishop, tiny little diminutive man, but a brilliant linguist. And so he learned all of the languages of the immigrant church. He was just so devoted to his people that he was like, they need a father who speaks their language, who meets them where they are. We can't demand that they conform to the culture of this country. We, We have to come to them in their need. Wow. And Philadelphia, also home of, of St. Catherine Drexel. Let's move on from Philadelphia to Emmitsburg, Maryland. That's the home of St. Elizabeth Ann Seton. Who is the first U.S.-born saint, although it wasn't technically the U.S. at the time. It was 1774. Uh, I think most people know her story. She was convert to Catholicism, a wife, a mother, a widow, who basically established uh, the Catholic school system in the United States, uh, really handed herself over 
to the service of the church through educating young people and founding this religious order. She has such an incredible story. Now we're going to take a bit of a road trip from Maryland to Indiana. Tell us about St. Theodore Guerin. She was from France, and she went out to Indiana and was doing this work on what was the frontier at the time. And so the sisters were experiencing all sorts of hardship, all sorts of poverty, difficulty with the hierarchy, which is often the case with the saints, you know, really wanted to be obedient because they understood that obedience to the bishops uh, is essential in being a faithful Catholic, but also continued to serve these people um, who didn't necessarily want them around. You know, they were educating young girls, they were educating indigenous people, and they were getting a lot of pushback. Um, But there's a beautiful adoration chapel when you're visiting St. Mary of the Woods that you're able to pray in while while you're going to visit her body as well. Cool. Now let's stick with the Midwest and head over to St. Charles, Missouri. Yeah, so you're going to have St. Rose Philippine Duchesne there, also a French religious, also working with indigenous people. And she had really longed to serve indigenous people, and it took years and years and years before she was finally able to go out and serve the Native American people. And then she was just never able to master their language, which was a great discouragement for her, because she knew, again, that these people needed her to meet them in their culture. But she was such a joyful and peaceful presence that they actually gave her the name Woman Who Prays Always. Even without being able to connect with them in their language, they could just, they could see the love of Christ in her. That's awesome. Now, from St. Charles, Missouri, there is a bit of a drive that you have to take to get to our next Blessed to visit in Oklahoma City with Blessed Stanley Rother. Yes, the first verified U.S.-born martyr, first U.S.-born priest to be beatified. Just just a beautiful man. Um, he's a 20th century Oklahoma farm boy, really struggled with languages, got kicked out of seminary because he couldn't learn Latin, but God was really able to work with that. Eventually he was ordained. He went down to Guatemala, and because of his experience on the farm, he was able to serve these Guatemalan people. But he also was sort of miraculously able to learn an indigenous language that only 35,000 people in the world speak. And it's sort of beautiful to see the way that God builds on our nature, but also sometimes is like, you know what, we're going to, we're going to have to give you a little bit of a boost on this one because these people need, they need a father who can understand them. And he ended up being martyred in Guatemala. And then from Oklahoma City, we travel to California where we can visit with St. Junipero Serra and the California missions. And from California, you can't take a car to Hawaii, but it would be worth the plane trip, I'm assuming. Am I right, Meg? (laughs) Exactly. And you know what? You can really, you can consider it um, a a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice to go to Hawaii. And I think that that would be important for your soul. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And and go out and visit St. Damien of Molokai and St. Marianne Cope, um, who spent their lives working with people with um, Hansen's disease, which is often called leprosy. In, uh, in the colony of Molokai. So they were, there was a leper colony where people were ripped out of the arms of their families and thrown off a ship and made to swim to shore. I mean, just mm. some really, really horrific treatment of these people because there was such great fear of the contagion of this disease. And both Damien and Marianne said, I don't care. I don't care what it costs me. Damien went really expecting that he was going to contract leprosy, Father Damien, and he did ultimately contract leprosy and died there. Marianne, Mother Marianne, brought her sisters there, and she prayed, and and she made a promise to the sisters. She said, as long as we remain there, not one of our sisters will contract this disease, and they're still there. 
incredible. And so that was the the end of of your blog post. But since you have uh, done this this pilgrimage all through the country, there are a few new blesseds from America that will take us to what Detroit and New Orleans. And then, of course, uh, Wichita could be a new site of pilgrimage as well. It's true. It's true. And actually, um, blessed James Alfred Miller, he's the one that I haven't visited. Oh. He's in Wisconsin. But yeah, so down in New Orleans is blessed Francis Xavier Silos, who actually worked with St. John Neumann, a missionary priest with a real heart for the poor. Up in Detroit is blessed Solanus Casey, uh, the beautiful, simple Capuchin Franciscan who had a beautiful healing ministry through his prayers. And brother James Miller um, over in Wisconsin was a a high school football coach and a teacher um, who was also killed in Central America as a missionary. Wow. And I was thinking of servant of God, Emile Capon, whose uh, remains were transferred to the the cathedral in Wichita, Kansas, another great site to, to go on a little pilgrimage as you road trip as a Catholic. We've been talking to Meg Hunter Kilmer, And you can read all of this over at her website, piercedhands.com, and pick up a copy of her book, Saints Around the World, from Emmaus Road Publishing. Meg, really appreciate this time you took to uh, tell us about all of these sites. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. You bet. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show Summer Special. Stick around. We'll be right back. Are you looking for peace? Logging for joy? Want to meet the giver of all goodness? God is calling the laity to bring Ignatian prayer into a suffering world. Work for the new evangelization. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. Order your free digital training and manual. Find true happiness and everlasting joy. Go to lordteachmetopray.com. And click on the red button today. It's free. Approved by the USCCB support from Angel Studios. This July 4th from Angel Studios, who brought you his only son and the chosen, comes a true story of courage and redemption. Sound of Freedom, starring Jim Caviezel, who portrayed Jesus in The Passion, and Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino. Inspired by remarkable acts of bravery, Sound of Freedom unveils the true events of a dangerous mission to save young, innocent lives. A story that shares hope and the power of human resilience. Sound of Freedom. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters July 4th. Do you use a single brew coffee maker at your home or in your workplace? The Carmelite Monks of Wyoming have single-use coffee pods especially for you. Go to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, to browse the Monk Shot options. When you check out, we'll earn a commission. And why not brew it straight into a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug? You can find those in our online store. Buy a mug and link for some monk shots for your Keurig at sonrisemorningshow.com. The most original and exclusive Catholic content is on EWTN Radio. Human beings are God's greatest masterpiece. Every person is made in the image and likeness of God. But every saint, that is, every person who accepts God's invitation, his upward call to make them holy. And so every story presents us with a unique masterpiece that God is writing. The Journey Home, tonight, 8 Eastern, on EWTN Radio and Television. It's time for Bible Foods. Rita Heikenfeld's online at abouteating.com. Today we're talking about mint. Good morning, Rita. How are you? I am good, and what a familiar herb. 
And what a great herb for this time of year because, it, you know, nothing quite like crushing a little mint leaf in your glass of iced tea and you're good to go. So let's look at mint in the scriptures. I think I've been doing radio for a few years before I ever realized that mint was in the Bible, and I know that thanks to you. Oh, yeah. It's in a real familiar passage, Matt. It's in Luke chapter 11 and verse 42. But woe unto you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. All right, so let's talk about the mint of Bible days, because if I look for varieties of mint out there today, there are dozens. Oh, yeah. Um, And here's my research. Here's what I found. It was sort of interesting, I thought. There's a mint called Habeck. From what I can understand, it's still grown a lot in the Middle East. And this is the species that is presumed to be the mint of the Bible. But here again, scholars don't always agree on it, because we know that there had to be lots of different mints, probably almost as many as there are today. And, you know, mint hybridizes freely. So, you know, if you had just peppermint and spearmint growing together, you never know what you're going to get in the offspring. But I do have Habeck mint in my Bible garden. It's a real pretty, it's a very savory sort of mint. It's not sweet tasting like peppermint or spearmint at all. And it likes a moist soil, um, and it's not propagated from seed like some other mints. The plant's sterile, so you got to use cuttings. And like all mints, I'll keep it in a container because you know what? It will overtake the garden. Anywhere that stem touches, it will root. Yeah, I've uh, had mint on a fence row before. Next thing you know, it's the whole fence line is covered in mint. Um, but how was it used in cooking during Bible days? Well, I think it was valued because of the, the fresh aroma. And it was also used to flavor meat and grains and, of course, salads like uh, the tabula that I make all the time. But here's the deal. It was also important, uh, Matt, as a strewing herb, which meant they put it on the floor to cleanse the floor. And when people walked on it, that aroma would wrap out and also helped clean the floor. And then the Hebrews and the Greeks and the Romans used mint, I think, um, probably a lot more than some of us do, because the, the leaves were chewed to aid digestion. And in the early days, mint and rosemary tea was a drink for athletes, not only to help them uh, with their digestion, but the rosemary gave them strength. So, yeah, it was used quite a lot. And I think it's important to point out here, uh, you mentioned tabula. You know, Paul just eats mint in his mint chocolate chip ice cream. But tabula is a more savory dish, and mint is kind of versatile in the fact that you can use it both ways. Oh, yeah. And, you know, you're right. We think of mint and tea and, and an ice cream. But um, being Lebanese, I use uh, mainly peppermint. But I use all the mints um, a lot as a savory ingredient. As I said, and you just said, um, the mint leaves in my tabula and kibbe, um are, are really necessary, and I also use it to make mint jelly and, and scones for the sweet part. But even in any green salad, I'll throw some mint leaves um, and, as you mentioned, too, drinks, because when you think drinks and even fruits together, if you put a little mint in, in, in there, it, it heightens the flavor, gives it a little more sweetness so you don't need sugar. So I think mint's a great sugar substitute as well. Yeah, and it goes in those mint juleps that same way. So you have got a great summer drink that's just a spa and detox water that if you give it to people, they're going to think, wow, this is really gourmet. But it's extremely simple now that I'm looking at the recipe. Oh, yeah. it's um, Sometimes I call it my detox water, spa water, vitamin water, because if you go to an exclusive spa, this may be what you'd be served um, or a version of it. And it really is. It's healthful and it's hydrating. And all you really need are two things, um, mint, fresh mint if you have it, dry if you don't, and lemons. 
course, the mint helps with digestion, and, the, and lemons with their vitamin C are great for your immune system. But the most important thing is it actually acts as a gentle liver detoxifier because the mint and especially the lemon contain vitamin C. So all you do is you just take some mint leaves and some uh, sliced lemons, and I put them in a pitcher or a glass and smush them up to release the flavors and oils. I just cover it with water and let it infuse. Sometimes I'll add some fresh berries, um, edible flowers, but basically it's just the mint and the lemons. You could also use limes, too. Again, it's very, very hydrating and so good for you. Yeah, keep a picture of that by the pool because it won't have any sugar in it, right? And it doesn't have any caffeine in it. I mean, there's really nothing bad in it. There's only good stuff in it. So we've got the recipe for that linked at sunrisemorningshow.com along with a roasted potato and fresh herb lemon pesto, which looks amazing. Rita, thanks so much. We'll talk to you again soon. Yep, I'll talk to you next week, Matt. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. We'll be right back. Did you know that in addition to coffee, the Mystic Monks of Wyoming also sell tea? And with it being iced tea season, now's a great time to give it a try. Whether you're looking to buy tea or coffee, be sure to go first to sunrisemorningshow.com and click the Mystic Monk link before you buy, and we'll get a portion of your purchase price. And while you're at our site, check out our online store, where you can buy Sunrise Morning Show ceramic and travel mugs. Check out our store and link through to Mystic Monk Coffee at sonrisemorningshow.com. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. One theme that gets quite a bit of attention in the Psalms is the human heart. It's striking how often a reference to the human heart begins a psalm. Three psalms, in fact, begin this way. I thank the Lord with all my heart. Other psalms beginning with references to the heart give us what it might take to uh, clear the way so that we can give thanks to the Lord with all our heart. Psalm 131, for example, begins, My heart is not proud. Pride, of course, is a constant obstacle to one's relationship with the Lord. Psalm 108 begins, My heart is ready. Later on, we discover that the heart is ready to give thanks. Then, of course, there's the other side of the spectrum. There are two psalms that begin, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So the psalmist regards as foolish the notion of ignoring all the wonderful evidence in creation that there is a God. And perhaps as we look deep down within, we'll discover that giving thanks to God is the very best thing to have within our hearts. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. You're listening to a summer special here on the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, joined now by Steve Ray from CatholicConvert.com. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Annie. Very good to be with you and uh, enjoying summer. Yes, and I am very glad to have you. Of course, summer is a time when a lot of people will be swimming, enjoying water in general. And so we're going to discuss swimming and floating and water in the Bible. And I mean, there is a lot of water that shows up in, in the Holy Land and in the Bible specifically. 
there's a lot of water that shows up, although there's a lot more about boats than there is about swimming. But <laughs> the five main bodies of water mentioned in the Bible, these are the main ones. There's other smaller and lesser mentioned, but the river Euphrates is known so big a deal that it just says the river. Mm. And everybody in the Bible knows it's referring to the Euphrates. There's also the Mediterranean Sea, which is salty. The Sea of Galilee, which is 33 miles around. The Jordan River connects the Sea of Galilee with the Dead Sea down to the south, which is all 10 times saltier than the ocean or the Mediterranean. That's why it's called dead. But those are the five main bodies of water mentioned in the Bible. So when we look to the Bible and talk about swimming and floating specifically, how often do we see those words in the Bible? We only find the word swim or swimming six times. We see the word floating two times, and we see the word drowning eight times. Oh, but boy. we won't talk too much about that one today. Goodness gracious. Well, <laughs> there's more drowning than there is swimming in the Bible. That's terrifying. Yeah. Now, you know, uh, let's talk about floating first and those two times in the Bible. Well, the two times it says float, it's kind of interesting because it's one of the biggest things that you ever would see in your life and one of the, and a very small thing. And the first one is the ark that Noah built. That ark was massive. It was like a 10-story building and it was the length of one and a half football fields. Can you imagine when the water uh, came on the earth, it says, and the ark began to float mm. and there was no way to control it. There was no way to steer it. There were no sails or motors or rudders. It just went where the waves took it, and it says it began to float. Now, there were people swimming around it, I'm sure. They were swimming. It doesn't mention them, but later they would be drowning. Yeah, and then the other one is the prophet Elisha. Yes, that's a very interesting one. Um, Elisha is a type of Christ. And Elijah is a type of John the Baptist. He pictures and prefigures John the Baptist. Elisha is a prefiguration of Jesus Christ and does many of the same miracles that Jesus did, although this is a unique one. There were men working out along the Jordan River, and one guy, and I've had this happen to me before when I was a boy. We had what we call axe or hatchets, so we had them. And sometimes the head would come flying off the handle and went shooting yes. out into the Jordan River, this guy, and he cries out, Master, Master, to Elisha. And he said, It's a borrowed axe head. What am I going to do now? I can't give it back to the man. So Elijah caused the axe head to float wow. in the water. So this is a very unheard of. It's obviously a miracle because never has probably ever before a heavy iron axe head come floating to the surface of the water. Huh. So that's the two times floating. The big thing is Noah's Ark and the small thing is an axe head in the Jordan River. I love it. I love it. And the you know what got me thinking about this topic in the first place to to contact you to do this was I was thinking about images of you floating in the Dead Sea on a pilgrimage to the Holy <laughs> Land. Can you tell us about why it is that you float and don't swim in the Dead Sea? Well, the Dead Sea is very interesting, and I'll start by saying it, it was it, the Old Testament does not call it the Dead Sea. It calls it the Salt Sea. Huh. And Josephus, a first century Roman writer, calls it asphaltitis, asphalt, because it smells like sulfur, asphalty kind of thing. Huh. But we call it the Dead Sea because there's nothing living in it, because it is 10 times saltier than the Dead Sea. In fact, when I take people there, I say, you cannot get this in your eyes or in your nose. Do do not swim on your stomach. Do not dive in. And I give them real um, 
detailed directions on what to do in the Dead Sea, how to get in the water, how to get out, and you float on your back. People have probably seen pictures of, of us floating on our back reading a newspaper or a magazine mm-hmm. because you can, on your back, your feet, your arms, and your head are up. And it's 1,250 feet below sea level, which wow. means that if Mount Everest is the highest point on the face of the earth, the Dead Sea is the absolute lowest place on the face of the earth. So it's always warm there. And I took my grandkids a couple of years ago to the Holy Land with us on a pilgrimage. And what a blast watching all of them floating and having a great time in the Dead Sea and in the Sea of Galilee and other places too. It's wonderful. Yeah, it sounds like it. And so let's transition from floating to swimming by using some instances or some people who did both in a way. Tell us about Jesus and Peter. Well, Jesus walked on the water, so in a way you could say he was floating, couldn't you? He he, he didn't sink in. He was on top of the water walking. And Peter, we always make fun of him because he sank and he didn't have enough faith. But I give him great compliments because nobody else even dared get out of the boat and try. And he did. And he did walk on the water until he looked down and said, hey, I can't walk on water. This is impossible. And then he began to sink. But What happened after that? Jesus reached down and took Peter's hand and Peter walked on the water all the way back to the boat with Jesus. So you have Peter and Jesus floating or swimming, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. on the Sea of Galilee. And I have never seen that yet in all of my 180 times (laughs) at the Sea of Galilee. But I will say this. I went out fishing one night all night with the fishermen. They were Jewish fishermen. And I felt just like I was with Peter, Andrew, James, and John. I fished with them all night long, caught all the fish that Peter and Andrew, James, and John caught. We had a, just an amazing time. But I got so seasick in the middle of the night, I wanted to get out and walk on the water. I believe it. And, you know, I think about the the the, the scenery of the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection when Peter dove into the sea Yep. and swam to Jesus on the shore because he recognized the Lord. We got to give him credit for that as well. We do. He said he stripped down and jumped into the sea and came swimming to the Lord and said, I am not worthy. I'm a sinner. Now, there's a, another funny thing that I have to tell you that when we take our groups to, it's called the primacy of Peter. That's on the Sea of Galilee. And it's the place where Jesus met them in the morning in John 21, after the resurrection, when they're fishing, he said, did you catch anything? And they said, no. And so he uh, told them to cast their net and they caught 153 fish. Mm-hmm. And it says that Peter jumped into the water. And when they came ashore, Jesus was cooking them breakfast on the shore. Now there's a really funny sign because many of the Arabs in the area who live there want to go fishing and have barbecues on the shore there, but it's because it's the church property. They keep it clear for pilgrims. So there's a sign that says no swimming and no barbecuing. (laughs) Now there's a picture of a guy swimming with a red line through it and a barbecue with a red line through it. I'm thinking if that sign was there 2000 years ago, Jesus couldn't have made them the fish and Peter couldn't have (laughs) swum ashore. (laughs) Oh, the irony. That's awesome. Now, you mentioned that uh, drowning is mentioned more often in the Bible than swimming and floating, even even combined here. So let's uh, let's talk just a little bit about that before we let you go. 
Okay, well, three of those times are when the Gadarene man who was possessed of demons, and he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, by the way. It's in a place today called Kersey. And we're able to take most of our groups there if we, if we try, if we have a little extra time. And that's where the Jesus cast the demons into the pigs and they rushed headlong into the water and drowned. So three of the times where drowning is referred to is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke telling the story about the pigs drowning. Now, Jesus, he killed two birds with one stone there, so to speak, kind of mm-hmm. a little pun there, killed many pigs with one stone because pigs were unclean animals and whoever was hurting them on the other side, probably Gentiles, but they were unclean animals. So Jesus got rid of a bunch of unclean animals and demons both at the same time. Now, another time drowning is mentioned in the Bible is also kind of interesting, is that it was when the the children of Israel crossed over the Red Sea out of Egypt. And it said that the waters parted when Moses raised his staff and the children of Israel walked through the waters. Now, that's a picture of being born again, by the way, because it says the children of Israel were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, water and spirit. Just like Jesus says, we have to be born again by water and spirit. And Catholics are correct. It is water baptism that does that. Now, it said then the waters came back. And the Egyptians, they came after them. And as soon as they got down into that dry area, the waters collapsed back in and drowned all the Egyptians. Now, the funny thing is, I've taken my kids there many times, too. And when I was telling my son, he was about eight years old, I said, now, a lot of people, modern skeptics, say that the water was just at a low tide or that there was um, a dry period. So the water was really only two inches deep. And that's how the children of Israel got across. And my son looked puzzled and he said, well, then the real miracle is that the whole Egyptian army drowned in two inches of water. Wow. That it was really a miracle. And all the people that try to dismiss the miracles of the Bible and try to say, well, it was just because it was a dry season or something like that. Um, I think we do great harm. And uh, I'm I'm always one. I believe the Bible says what it says and it means what it says. Agreed. Agreed. We've been talking to Steve Ray. This has been such a fun conversation that we've had about swimming and floating in the Bible. And if listeners want to take a pilgrimage with you, Steve, and go floating in the Dead Sea or you know, swimming in the Sea of Galilee or renewing their baptismal promises in the Jordan River with you. How can they get more information? Catholicconvert.com. And I've got all the pilgrimages up there. And if you don't have money or time to go, I have for the last 10 years, all the last 100 pilgrimages we've gone on, they're all up on video. So you can actually do video pilgrimages with us if you just go to my website. Catholicconvert.com. Steve Ray, thank you so much. Thank you, Annie. Have a good summer. Thank you, Steve. You do the same. And uh, just one last verse that mentions drowning that I'd like to share. Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. You're listening to a Sunrise Morning Show Summer Special. It's 35 past the hour. This is Father Rob Jack with a Catechism Moment. An issue that always begins to pop up as we approach Holy Week concerns the death of Jesus Christ. We want to know who's ultimately responsible for Jesus' death. We want someone to blame. Often we are like the apostles who responded to Jesus at the Last Supper when he told them that someone would betray him by saying this, Surely, Lord, it is not I. 
and throughout history, Christians have tried to blame the Romans or the Jews or Judas, but in the end they are all wrong. Paragraph 598 clearly states who is responsible for Christ's death. It says there, In her magisterial teaching of the faith and in the witness of her saints, the Church has never forgotten that sinners were the authors and ministers of all the sufferings that the Divine Redeemer endured. But the irony of this is that the recognition of our culpability still does not keep us from sinning against God in both what we do and in what we fail to do. We claim to know Jesus Christ and to love him, and still we ignore the poor, still we are uncharitable to our neighbor, still we neglect our families, still we indulge in carnal, sinful pleasures. We still fail to pray or to attend Mass or obey the teachings of Christ and his church. This paragraph reminds us that above all, we must be a humble and contrite people. Our humility recognizes our human weakness, and our contrition recognizes our immediate need of God's grace. Through the forgiveness that Jesus Christ won for us on the cross, may we learn compassion for sinners, sorrow for our sins, and a firm purpose of amendment to turn from all of our sins, whether they be petty or mortal. Lord Jesus crucified, have mercy on us. The Faithful Traveler is with us now, Diana Von Glan, joining us from Philadelphia. Good morning, Diana. Good morning. How are you? I am doing fine and really looking forward to talking to you about this. So one of the hallmarks of summer in Europe is the Tour de France. And you've got an old article over at the National Catholic Register talking about connecting the route of the Tour de France to a bunch of Catholic pilgrimage sites. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, I am. I'm not a biker, and I, I'm, <laughs> I've never watched the Tour de France, but, you know, it's a great opportunity. I mean, it's one of the things that reminds you that, you know, there's always a great opportunity to incorporate our faith into whatever is going on. And so, you know, for people who follow the Tour de France, you know, I thought it would be great to do a Tour de France Catholic style. So we start at the beginning, which was at is one of the most amazing sites in France, Mont Saint-Michel, and then we make our way all the way down and then up back to Paris, which is where they're going to be ending. And we just kind of, I just mentioned the, you know, some of the sites, um, some of them are shrines, some of them are churches, some of them are, you know, ruins of abbeys, and just kind of talking about the history of Catholicism in France. And of course, we, you know, it's just scratching the surface. I mean, Catholicism in France just is amazing. And the amount of Marian apparitions as well as apparitions from Jesus that occurred in France are also just amazing. Most definitely. And speaking of the Tour de France, I mean, there are 20 one stages and you have a little uh, blurb about each of them. So obviously we don't have that kind of time to go through all of them. Are there any that you would like to highlight? You know, some of them pass by some of the more well-known Marian apparitions. None Mm -hmm. of them stop in any of the apparition sites. Um, they go by Lourdes, which is, you know, one of the most oh, famous Marian apparitions in the world. just drive past Lourdes? <laughs> I know. I know. And that's Man. actually one of the things that I say is, like, here these guys are, like, totally biking, you know, and I was like, <laughs> I, it's just a it's totally different endeavor, and I don't want to take away from, you know, its value, but, you know, I'd rather sit and light a candle. Yep, <laughs> me too. I'm with you. Yeah, so they 
pass by Lourdes. Um, you know, there's also there are also other apparition sites like Pont Mon that they pass by. Um, they pass by La Salette. Of course, Mount Saint Michel. It was actually built because Saint Michael, the archangel, asked a bishop multiple times to build a church there, and the bishop kept ignoring him until Saint Michael touched him mm-hmm. on his head and burned a hole in his skull. <laughs> wow! <laughs> so he meant business. Yeah, <laughs> clearly, don't mess yeah, with Saint so. Michael. Whether you're, you know, a demon or not, goodness gracious. Um, You know, I think one of the things that people may not think about when they decide that they're going to go on pilgrimage, whether it's to France or anywhere, but I would say particularly in France, this is not something that you might think about right away, is that there are a lot of ruins that you can visit, which would be a really interesting trip to make. Yes. So some of the places that um, the Tour de France is passing by passes by some ruined abbeys. And of course, you know, on the one hand, it's it's beautiful to see because some of the ruins are very pretty. On the other hand, it's a real opportunity to reflect on the history of Catholicism in France and on the history of different orders and, and why things fell apart. And from a historical perspective, you can understand why this became ruins. But you also have to think about it from a spiritual perspective, too, you know, yeah. and think like a lot of times, of course, you know, the, the sin of pride <laughs> becomes a huge issue, you know, and yeah. back in the day when priests weren't necessarily as good uh, priests as they should have been, and some of these religious orders were getting a little too political and worrying too much about honors and things as opposed to things of God. And so you think, well, yeah, of course it makes sense why this thing fell apart, because it wasn't of God, you know. Yeah. It, it also then, of course, makes you look at yourself and think, well, how am I being, you know. So I always kind of think about all this stuff and just, you know, think that these things are, on the one hand, from a, a tourism perspective, it's a great place to go. It's beautiful. It's historical. But from a spiritual perspective, it makes you think, you know, mm-hmm. it makes you think about history. It makes you think about your own life and your own faith. And of course, we love being surrounded by the cloud of witnesses, the saints, and there are some great saints from France. Oh, yeah, yeah, there are. One of the places the Tour de France is passing by is Ars, which is where the curé of Ars lived, St. Mm-hmm. John Vianney, who is the patron saint of um, parish priests. And, at, you know, Annecy has the bodies of um, St. Francis de Sales <laughs> and oh, St. Um, Jean de Chantal. So, you know, those are two bodies. Of course, you know, St. Vincent de Paul is in Paris, and then, you know, the Rue de Bac is in Paris. So, yeah, that's another thing, is that you can go to the places where saints lived. You can go to um, where Joan of Arc was born, you know, Mm -hmm. and of course we can't see her body because, you know, it was burned. burned, But, yeah, I mean, you can, going to the places where saints lived or where they died is also a great way to reflect on, you know, the communion of saints and, and how they all lived their faith and how they all ended up becoming saints, you know, and it's, a, a, I mean, again, you know, just another great reflection on our faith, and, and plus it's it's fun to go and visit these places. Yeah, most definitely, and you didn't even mention St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, St. Bernadette, I mean, there are all kinds of excellent saints in France, and we didn't even have time to get to Paris here, Diana, <laughs> we've run out of time, but uh, that just means that listeners need to check out your article at the National Catholic Register. And uh, where can listeners find out more about The Faithful Travelers? Yes, people can uh, visit us online at thefaithfultraveler.com. And just one last thing, you know, everybody keep France in your prayers. Pray to all these French saints, you know, because prayer is not nothing. 
Amen to that. A great way to end this uh, segment. And Diana, thank you so much for your time. I love talking to you. Thanks, Amy. I love talking to you, too. Well, thanks so much. You're listening to a summer special here on the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell. We'll be right back. Support is from Solidarity HealthShare. Do you have an insurance plan that pays for everything, even things that violate your beliefs? Have you ever felt there has to be a better way, but didn't know you had any options? If you answered yes, I've got some good news for you. There is a better way and a more affordable way. Solidarity HealthShare can save you hundreds of dollars each month while actually supporting your beliefs. Because the best news is that Solidarity HealthShare costs a whole lot less than insurance. It's time to jump in and put your money where your faith is and put some money back into your wallet at the same time. Join Solidarity HealthShare, a faith-based healthcare sharing community. Prices start as low as $384 a month for families. Call to see how much you can save, 844-334-3245. That's 844-334-3245. Solidarity HealthShare, 844-334-3245. Have you considered energizing your business marketing plan? The Sunrise Morning Show is heard across the U.S. on more than 360 Catholic radio stations, reaching millions of engaged listeners in the heart of the morning commute. You can speak directly to a loyal group of like-minded people who prefer to use businesses who share their faith and values. Find out more about underwriting The Sunrise Morning Show by emailing me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Are you having trouble in your marriage and don't know where to turn? Has your spouse stopped going to Mass with you? Has infidelity taken place in your marriage? Have money issues put your relationship on a bumpy road? Do you have issues with your in-laws? Hi, I'm Janet Williams. Join me and my husband, Jack Williams. We talk about marriage and how we are to lead our spouse to the faith. It's Marriage Monday on Women of Grace at 11 a.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio. Joining us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Dr. Regis Martin. He's a professor at Franciscan University. He writes for the National Catholic Register, and you can listen to his podcast in search of The Still Point at regismartin.podbean.com. Dr. Martin, good morning. Good morning. Uh, Nice to be with you. It is great to have you, and I am so excited Mm -hmm. to get your summer reading picks, your summer reading recommendations for our listeners, and you've got a play, a fantasy, and a metaphysical thriller to share with right. us today. Yeah. Yeah. So let's start with the play, because this is one that, that many people have probably at least heard of. They may have seen, probably have seen the film. But tell sure. us what A Man for All Seasons is all about. Well, it's a, a wonderfully uh, written play about uh, my favorite saint, uh, Sir Thomas More, whose feast day uh, we celebrated yesterday, uh, along with uh, St. John Fisher. Uh, I, I think the two of them lost their heads in the space of, of the same week, back in eight, uh, back in 1535, uh, each a victim of uh, the excesses of, of Henry VIII, who was consumed with, with lust, ambition, and a growing hatred uh, for the Church. But the play uh, was written by a superbly gifted writer, Robert Bolt, who also did the screenplay uh, in which uh, Paul Schofield uh, plays Thomas More. 
And uh, as you know, it won a busload of, uh, of awards, including uh, an Academy Award in 1965 for the best picture of the year. But it is a, a riveting uh, account of the last weeks and days of, of Moore's life. And, and what endears Moore, I, I think, to uh, the reader is that here is a guy who had a very clear sense of his own self, as Bolt puts it uh, in his wonderful introduction. He knew where he began and he knew where he left off. Hmm. And what really attracted him uh, to the person of Moore was the fact that nobody could accuse Moore of an incapacity for life. And yet he found something in himself without which life had no value. It had no point uh, or purpose. And when that purpose was, was threatened, he was able to grasp his death and go serenely uh, to the scaffold. Uh, and he's a very impressive figure. I mean, he stands on the scaffold and he declares, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. And, and Bolt also uh, describes Moore as a very orthodox Catholic, uh, someone for whom an oath uh, is perfectly plain, plain as a potato. It's an invitation to God, and that invitation God will not refuse to act as a witness, to judge. And for Moore, the consequence of, of perjury is also pretty plain. That is to say, perdition. You go to hell if you perjure yourself in the presence of God. And so for Moore, the issue was very simple, but it wasn't easy. It was very difficult. Uh, uh, Moore was an incredibly sensitive guy who, who did not want to die, wanted to try to maneuver his way uh, safely to the other side, but it could not be. He was forced to choose, and so he chooses uh, death rather than dishonor. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very much touched by the, the tribute that uh, Dr. Johnson paid uh, to Moore, which uh, Bolt quotes in the front piece. He says, Moore was the person of the greatest virtue these islands ever produced. Hmm. Johnson was an Anglican, and Bolt, when he wrote the play, was sort of an agnostic, and yet the two of them, uh, you know, sort of conspire to heap this tremendous homage upon a Catholic saint. So Catholics should have a special devotion uh, to this man. So read the book, uh, see the movie, which in some ways is even better than the book, uh, because it's tighter uh, and uh, more immediate and visual. But it is uh, an extraordinary uh, experience. Absolutely. I completely agree. Now let's talk about your second recommendation, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Why did you choose this one? Well, it's an easy read. Uh, it's reader-friendly. It's uh, less than a, a hundred or so pages. It's a fantasy, a kind of allegory. But the premise of, of, of the book is, is really uh, of enchanting. The possibility that if you're in hell, you might be invited to come up to heaven as a sort of day-tripper. Uh, you take an excursion on a bus. I guess every Saturday morning it picks up people uh, who'd like to uh, try out the landscape. But invariably, the same group returns, you know, sullen uh, and uh, disgruntled back to hell because heaven is too bright. It's too solid. The joys uh, are, are too real. And uh, the point of, uh, of the story is that 
heaven and hell uh, are divorced. There's no way that you can accommodate one to the other. Lewis says, if you insist on keeping hell, you will not see heaven. And if you accept heaven, then you won't be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. You have to choose, and the stakes uh, are, are eternal. The weight of, of eschatology, uh, you know, sort of pressures us, moves us in the direction of making a choice when we stand finally before God. And, and there's one episode uh, in the story which, uh, which really is, uh, is uh, 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 instructive. It's the young man who's got the lizard on his shoulder, which I think is a symbol for lust. And this mighty angel uh, is offering to grab the lizard and kill it, because it's clearly a source of torment uh, for this young man. But he's so hesitant, so irresolute, because he wants to come to terms uh, with, uh, with the lizard, and the lizard lies to him and says, look, I won't be so obstreperous. Let's just get along together. You know you depend on me. But the angel convinces the young man that you've got to choose. If you want eternal happiness, you have to allow me to kill the lizard. And finally, in desperation, he cries out, God, help me. Take it. Kill it. Uh, and the angel does. And this astonishing transformation then takes place. The lizard grows into a mighty stallion, and the young man becomes this strapping, almost angelic figure who then mounts the stallion, and they ride off uh, wow. into some uh, heavenly sunset. It, it's an extraordinary uh, lesson that if you allow the sins to die and you let go of them, then somehow the nature that they had corrupted and perverted will be restored uh, to something grand uh, and sublime. But you have to master those appetites. You mustn't allow the appetites uh, to master you. Mm. So beautiful. So it's a wonderful story. Lewis had a great talent, I, I think, for uh, for uh, fiction, for telling stories in in such a lucid uh, and compelling way. Most definitely did. Now let's get to your third recommendation before we have to let you go, Doctor Martin. Charles Williams' Descent into Hell. Tell us about this one. Well, this is a difficult book. It's a novel, uh, and it's uh, it's almost 300 pages, but it is uh, very, very engaging. It's what I think T.S. Eliot called a, a metaphysical thriller. It's a kind of ghost story. It, it was Eliot who said, look, the, the one person he knew who would have been most at ease in the company of a ghost was Charles Williams. Uh, he's not well known, but he was really the leader of a group of inklings who gathered around a tavern in Oxford to share their manuscripts. And that group included Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis, I think Dorothy Sayers and others. But, but uh, Williams was clearly uh, the spiritual master who inspired these other men, even if uh, he made less of a splash in the literary world. But Williams was someone who did not think that um, the transition between time and eternity was particularly dense or thick. There was a kind of diaphanous uh, uh, screen between this world and the next world, between matter and meaning, and that we could come and go between the two worlds. And in this novel, uh, that is dramatized. There's a particular character, I think her name is Pauline, who is... Um, 
tormented by a double. She keeps meeting herself in the street, and it frightens her, what, what the Germans call a doppelganger. And it's really uh, her own self that she's taking flight from, but also this self appears in the guise of a distant ancestor who is entreating her for help because he's about to face some fearful ordeal. He's about to be burned at the stake three and a half centuries earlier, and he wants someone to help carry that burden. Hmm. So Pauline uh, shares her burden with this very uh, holy playwright, Peter Stanhope, who says, look, the next time you're bothered by this, think that another person, myself, is there to carry the burden. And it's the whole Pauline doctrine of substituted love, that we carry one another's burdens. If, if you have a parcel that's too heavy and I offer to lift it up for you, then the weight you bear is diminished by what I have agreed to shoulder. We are to carry one another's burdens. And so he offers to carry hers, and this gives her the strength later on to carry her ancestor's burden, wow. who is then able to face the flames uh, with triumph and joy. I am it's so intrigued. Stirring. Yeah, I, I'm going to have to pick up this book, Descent into Hell by Charles Williams, and yeah. then also C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce and A Man for All Seasons by Robert Bolt, the recommendations of Dr. Regis Martin for summer reading. Dr. Martin, thank you so much. Sure, my pleasure. Have a great day. You do the same. Thank you. And that will do it for this summer special of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swayman, Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace. Hear God's word. Let us pray. The Sunrise Morning Show. Let's begin this hour of the Sunrise Morning Show with a prayer to the Holy Spirit. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us in the same Spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, and welcome to this special edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, and alongside Matt Swain, we're celebrating summer today. We've got some great guests lined up for you. Mike Aquilina will join us to talk about the spirituality of leisure. Amy Wellborn will discuss a few of her favorite saints of summer, saints who have a feast day, 
Rita Heikenfeld will tell us about some Bible herbs that can help you repel bugs, an important topic for this time of year. Danielle Bean has some summer reading picks that you can read aloud to your kids. And Steve Ray will join us to talk about the theology of fishing, a favorite summer pastime, of course. Hope you can stick around for the entire hour ahead. We'll get started right now at two minutes past the hour. Matt? From FathersoftheChurch.com, we're joined now by Mike Aquilina to talk about leisure and relaxation and really Sabbath in the early church. Mike, good morning. Morning, Matt. You know, I want to insert the word Sabbath into the conversation because I don't think people realize that the Ten Commandments have built into them this idea that we should rest on the Lord's Day. I, I wonder how many religions have that kind of thing built into them from the, the beginning of a creation. Well, it's unusual and almost unique in antiquity. What we find in other places is that there would be kind of uh, an aggregation of holidays because I think people have a need for this this sort of thing. They have a need to relax and, and take a breather from work and have leisure, let their mind rest. But the unique thing about, about Judaism and Christianity is that it was there from the beginning. It was built into their year, it was built into their week, and it was built into religion from the first page of the holy books. And one of the things you can get bogged down on if you start at the beginning of the Bible and read forward is you know, when you get into Leviticus and you see, like, just all these descriptions of feasts that you've never heard of, but that would go on for days. I mean, days people would feast. And then when you get into the New Testament, you see a wedding, and it goes on for days. <laughs> yes. Yes, people were able to let down and relax a little bit more, I think. What we see with the beginning, uh, what we see with the book of Genesis, is that God created the world with a certain design, with a certain order to it, that there were six days, and he told the man to work the land and to, to impose a certain order on creation. You know, God created man in order to uh, impose that order and keep it, sustain it, and that's work. So man was created for work, and work is a good thing, but work is not an end in itself. Work is ordered toward rest, toward leisure. So we have the six days of work. God works for six days and then rests on the seventh. Well, we know that God doesn't get tired. God doesn't change, and God is eternal. So why did he do that? Why did he rest on the seventh day? Well, because he's a father, and he wanted to set an example for his children that we work six days, but those six days are ordered in creation. It's right there in the fabric of creation. Those days are ordered to rest, and rest is ordered to worship. We worship on that seventh day uh, from, from the time of Genesis onward. It's a beautiful thing, and I think that non-biblical religions get everything backward. Non-biblical cultures tend to get everything backward. They think of the day of rest as something that's ordered to work. Well, you need to rest in order to build up your strength to work some more. But that's exactly backward. You know, one of the ancient rabbis said that rest is last in creation, but first in intention. God intended the Sabbath rest from the beginning to be a joy for mankind because of our need to worship him, to, to contemplate him. And, of course, the modern-day weekend comes from you know, the Jewish observance of the Sabbath, the Christian observance of Sunday as the Lord's Day when Jesus was resurrected. And so we have that built into our calendars. You know, a lot of people work on weekends, but the society as a whole recognizes those days as kind of set apart from the normal five-day work week. Mike, let's talk about what people did in the early church, because the 
printing press doesn't come along for 1500 years. And uh, I like to relax with a good book. I guess you couldn't exactly relax with a good book in the early church. Uh, no, people didn't have books as a general rule. Books were very expensive. They had to be copied out by hand by a skilled scribe that cost a fortune. Who could afford that? And, and very few people had, had been educated to read anyway. So what did people do on that day off? Well, they, they went to worship. They went to Mass. They went to the liturgy. And it's interesting, but people then looked at preaching as a form of entertainment. You know, some of the church fathers could preach as long as an hour on whatever the gospel was, and people would show up because that was their entertainment. That was TV and radio and the Internet all built into one uh, because it was a form of communication, and it was something that, that delighted them when it was done well. There's plenty of evidence of this, and St. John Chrysostom complains that people show up for the homily and then leave as soon as the homily is done and go over to the racetrack or wherever it was that they wanted to go. So, yeah, that's what they did on Sunday. They also spent time with family. There's a, a great sermon by Basil the Great where, where he talks about people walking in a leisurely way to the liturgy and then walking home afterwards, humming the tune of the responsorial psalm. So there, there is this image of relaxation, of a slower pace, of time with family, time with friends that we have from the times of the fathers. I, I like that description of, you know, humming the hymns on the way home. My dad used to whistle whatever we sang in church on Sunday for like half of the week afterwards. It was just a thing, the idiosyncrasy of my father. He still does it to this day. Uh, but in terms of this whole question of holidays, and we alluded this to this earlier when we were talking about the Sabbath, one of the things I noticed as I started to explore Catholicism seriously as a then Protestant was, man, there are a lot of parties on this calendar. <laughs> There are a lot of parties on the calendar. It's funny, when our children were very young, we, we were always big on the calendar. You know, there's that great line from one of the rabbis in the 19th century, and he said, the, the catechism of the Jew is the calendar. You know, because he said that the calendar itself, with its feast days, teaches the faith. And, and it's the way that the faith continues from generation to generation in a consistent way. And that's true of, uh, for the Jews. It's true also for the Christians, that long before there was literacy, widespread literacy, long before there were books available, long before there were any catechisms, there was the Church, and the Church celebrated feast days. And the feast days included songs. You know, you, you talk about your father whistling that melody, of the hymn for half the week after hearing it at, at church. Well, well, there's good reason for that. The melody delivers the message, and it makes the message memorable. So you have it through the week, and you have that melody running through your head with its doctrinal message. So we learn the faith that way. The year itself has the shape of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it plays out for us every year. We rehearse the life of our Lord Every single year of our lives, it's always the same. It always has the same songs. It always has the same particular foods and customs, you know, Christmas trees or Easter baskets or whatever. And, and so we get the message, and it's memorable to us. All of this is possible because of the leisure that's built into the calendar. It gives us these things to contemplate, and it gives us the time to contemplate them. You know, Mike, leisure is a good but gluttony is a deadly sin. <laughs> so I wonder how the uh, church fathers and some of those other figures of the early church talked about good and bad ways of using this time of leisure. 
Oh, well, you, you find that as a theme in the fathers, because everything gets abused. You know that. I, I mean, you, you can't have something, something good without someone, you know, making mischief with it. And, and so you have St. Ambrose talking about how the customs regarding memory of the dead, for example, turned into drunken parties in the cemeteries. And so Ambrose worked to dissuade people from celebrating that way, to find truly Christian ways of celebrating. So as long as we're in this fallen condition, we're going to be that way, and we have to strive for virtue in our work, and we have to strive for virtue in our leisure as well. So, Mike, I wonder if people want to read some resources uh, about this. Uh, work, play, love, I think, is probably the best place to go. I wonder if you could let our listeners know kind of what the purpose of that book of yours is. Well, uh, work, play, love talks about these, these three ways that culture uh, was changed by the liturgy of the Church, uh, that, that the liturgy affected the way we think about our work, the liturgy affected the way we think about our play, our leisure, and the liturgy affected the way we think about love, our charity in, in society. So, uh, so, yeah, that little book talks about uh, what leisure makes possible when it builds up a Christian culture, because there's so much that we take for granted in the way we work, in the way we play, in the way we love, and all of these things are Christian at root, but we've forgotten our roots. We've forgotten where we've come from. We've forgotten history. Heck, now we're even tearing down the monuments so we can't remember history. So, yeah, I think we need to, to, to get back in touch with that. That's why I wrote the book Work, Play, Love. And, of course, you can find that where? Fathersofthechurch.com. Thank you, Mike Aquilina, for joining us. And thank you for listening to the Best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. Support for the Sunrise Morning Show is from Visiting Angels. Visiting Angels provides experienced, compassionate care to millions of aging adults nationwide by keeping them safe and healthy in the comfort of their own home. Whether it's a short break for caregivers or for long-term assistance, Visiting Angels provides hygiene, meals, light housework, companionship, and more. And services are available up to 24 hours per day. Visiting Angels, online at visitingangels.com. That's visitingangels.com franchise opportunities available. Support from Angel Studios. This July 4th from Angel Studios, who brought you his only son and the chosen, comes a true story of courage and redemption. Sound of Freedom. Starring Jim Caviezel, who portrayed Jesus in The Passion, and Academy Award winner Mira Sorvino. Inspired by remarkable acts of bravery, Sound of Freedom unveils the true events of a dangerous mission to save young, innocent lives. A story that shares hope and the power of human resilience. Sound of Freedom. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. In theaters July 4th. If cold brew is what you like to drink when the weather's hot, why not save some cash and make your own with Mystic Monk Coffee? They have all kinds of coffee blends that taste great hot or cold. They've got options for you to make iced tea as well. And when you click through to the Mystic Monks from our site, sonrisemorningshow.com, we earn a commission from your purchase. You can also check out our online store to get a Sunrise Morning Show ceramic or travel mug. Find a mug and link to Mystic Monk Coffee through sunrisemorningshow.com. If it's central to the faith, you can find it on EWTN Podcast Central, featuring the best of EWTN radio, as well as faith-filled podcasts from our friends and affiliates across the nation, all in one place, all free. The destination for great Catholic audio programming is EWTN Podcast Central. It's like podcast heaven. Visit EWTN.com slash radio slash podcast today.
Back with us now on the Sunrise Morning Show is Danielle Bean. You can find her at catholicmom.com. You can listen to her girlfriend's podcast through ascensionpress.com and connect with her directly at daniellebean.com. Good morning, Danielle. Good morning. How are you? I am doing just fine, and I am definitely going to be listening closely to what you have to say today. So as we have highlighted many times before, you are a mother of eight, and so I imagine you spent many years reading aloud to your children. Is that true? Absolutely. I am a big believer in the power of reading aloud, for sure. And so I thought that you would probably be a good person to ask for some summer reading recommendations that kids over a spectrum of ages would be able to digest and enjoy. I mean, you can read chapter books that toddlers can kind of still enjoy at at some level, right? Right, of course. And you know what the funny thing is? The magic about reading aloud is that I've noted over the years, you know, we tend to think it's for littler kids, right? But as I've been reading books aloud to, uh, you know, focused on my younger kids, they'll be the ones that I've kind of gathered and like, we're going to read a chapter now. And But then I noticed the older ones over the years would be hanging around, listening, you know, mm-hmm. leaning in the doorway, just lingering nearby because they were interested. They were reliving some of these classes that we had enjoyed when they were younger. And you know what? The, the best of the books are really do appeal to a broad range of ages. The ones that I read over and over again are because I love them, too, still, after all these years. And so that is the case with the Little House series, I suppose? Yes. Oh, my gosh. I cannot recommend it enough. Um, and you know what? This is what this is part of what makes me sad in our kind of cancel culture that we live in today, because the Little House series have come under fire, and Laura Ingalls has come under fire for um, potentially racist views that she held, and there are, you know, racist situations inside some of the books. But I really, I, I think it's really a scary thing when we start to delete parts of our history. I think that in, in those moments where um, there were, you know, Native Americans and they were referred to in certain ways by Ma Ingalls who had, you know, racial prejudices in the books, for me, as a mom, those were opportunities for me to pause with my kids and actually talk about, you know, what yeah. what the, the time period was that was being described in this book, who the person was that wrote the book, what their perspective was, and how things have changed, how we have a different, broader perspective, how, you know, we're, we're called to a higher standard, really an opportunity to talk about those things without losing the essence of what the books are, which is a beautiful work of art, a beautiful, you know, capturing of a part of our nation's history, perhaps idealized, but that's part of the charm of them. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say a a lot of times we can learn from learn about virtue and virtuous behavior by seeing the absence of it in a story like this. That's right. We shouldn't just be feeding our kids, you know, perfection and perfect examples. I think having the opportunity to talk about real life and some of the ways that real people really mess things up sometimes is a great way to teach your kids about what's true, what's valuable, what God calls us to do, and what real virtue is. All right, let's move on to the next recommendation you have. Tell us about the Great Brain series. Yeah, this is a lesser-known series, but, oh, my gosh, it's such a favorite in our household. My kids just still laugh and tell each other the stories from the books. So these are by uh, John Fitzgerald, and they're sort of memoirish books, but they're not all, you know, 100% accurate, right, for his his childhood um, <laughs> okay. growing up in, in a... 
Yeah, in a Mormon family in Utah and uh, going to a Catholic school. And the, just, they're just these boyish adventures. And this is part of what I love about this, that this is sort of at the turn of the century. And, um, you know, there's, there's this history, his, historical uh, aspect to some of these. You know, the, you learn about, like, the, the, he was the first family to have, like, a flushing toilet in their house and that they were at the school where basketball was invented and all of these things that, you know, my kids are fascinated to read the history of some of these things, but also it's just true boyish adventures. I mean, my girls enjoyed them too, but I found this series was unique because it really was told from a boy's perspective, right? Different from the Little House series for the most part, and um, fully embraced the boy culture without, you know, without apologizing for it. There were bullies, there were fights, there were, um, you know, all, they were roaming about the neighborhood and getting into different kinds of trouble, and um, without apologizing for that, and I think that is a really refreshing thing in today's day and age. Did you say this was about a Mormon kid who went to a Catholic school? <laughs> yes. And, I mean, that's part of what we loved about it, that there were parts of the Catholic culture we could understand and appreciate, but then there were parts of the, the Mormon culture that you were like, what on earth? You know, and it was, it was really interesting for us to kind of read that, that perspective. And, um, all, you know, w- while he's going to a, a Catholic boarding school. <laughs> Well, I don't want to run out of time before you get a chance to talk about anything by E.B. White. Great for kids. Ah, oh, my gosh. Heartbreakingly beautiful stories. And these are classics for a reason. If you haven't read E.B. White aloud to your kids, I mean, are you even parenting? Like, you've got to read The the Trumpet of the Swan, Charlotte's Web. I have sobbed my way through Charlotte's <laughs> Web so many times with my kids. It still gets me every time. And I mean, this is just beautiful writing from an American writer, and uh, just and the way that he captures such simple stories with such fantastic elements, and yet makes it all feel real, and at the same time imparts a real message to to your kids, to you, reminds you of, of virtue, reminds you of the things that we value, and um, some principles of our human interactions. I think it's such a beautiful thing inside of these stories to. Recognize, you know, here's a swan who's playing a trumpet, right, at a boys' camp in the summertime. It's like the craziest idea ever. Or, you know, Stuart Little, a tiny little mouse who just happens to be born into a human family. Like, (laughs) what is going on here? And yet it all becomes very realistic um, through the stories that E.B. White shares because he, he shares a common humanity, and that's a common thread in all of his stories. Yes or no, do you read aloud the elements of style as well? (laughs) <laughs> no, but that is required reading around here. Absolutely. Every bit is entertaining. I love it. I love it. You can find Danielle Bean linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Danielle, thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Happy reading. You're listening to the Sunrise Morning Show. It's 21 minutes past the hour. What does the church say about excommunication? With regard to the Catholic Church, to be excommunicated is to have been cut off from the sacraments and from participating in liturgical ministry in the Mass or other public worship by the Church. Because of the seriousness of excommunication, this level of punishment is applied to only relatively limited types of offenses. These include desecration of the Blessed Eucharist, physical force against the Pope, procuring an abortion, rejection of the church's teachings through apostasy, heresy, or schism, 
violation of the seal of confession, and consecration of one bishop by another without mandate by the Pope. In cases of specified very serious offenses, for example, having or participating in the occurrence of an abortion, the mere fact that the act is carried out is cause for the penalty. In other instances, the penalty is not imposed automatically, but only after a thorough investigation of the matter and formally notifying the person involved of the seriousness and potential consequences of the act. If you have concerns or questions about the matter of excommunication, please consult a priest for guidance and direction. For Sacred Heart Radio, this is Deacon Bill Mullaney. St. John Paul II confidently pronounced, only through the Eucharist is it possible to live the heroic virtues of Christianity. Charity to the point of forgiving one's enemies, love for those who make us suffer, and when one is shocked by the silence of God in the tragedies of history, you must always be Eucharistic souls in order to be authentic Christians, he said. Authentic Christians, pray for that grace. For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Precious Blood Father, Kevin Scalf. Sunrise Morning Show continues. I'm Matt Swaim, and I hope your summer is going well. If you're like me, one of your favorite things to do in the summer is get out a rod and get on the water and go fishing. Even if you have no success, it's still a good time. Steve Ray now joining us from CatholicConvert.com to talk about the imagery of fishing that is all over the scriptures. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Matt. Happy summer to you. Yeah, thanks. So give us an idea of how many times fish or fishing uh, is mentioned in the Bible. It was one of those major occupations in Israel because the Sea of Galilee is the largest freshwater reservoir over in that area, and there was a lot of fish there. So when you do a search in the Bible, you find that fishing or fishermen comes up 88 times in the Bible, 34 times in the Gospels alone. Then a lot of times it is used as a real historical thing. They went out fishing or they caught fish, and a lot of times it's used figuratively for other things, too. Just like sheep and shepherds are one of the most discussed issues in the Bible because that was also part of their culture with sheep and shepherds. You know, you can read the Bible and get most of the moral lessons, but there are certain things that you can't understand really quite to their fullest extent unless you've either raised a garden or gone fishing. Exactly. It's called cultural or biblical literacy, being in the historical context, because if you have no idea what a fish is, and you've never gone fishing, and you don't know anything about that, and you read the Gospels, it's going to be a bit confusing, and you're not going to get a lot out of it, because there's so much about fishing in there. But if you have done those things, then it really helps open up the Bible. And I've learned that when you study scriptures, the more you know about the geography, the languages, the people, cultures, occupations, the more you understand the depths of scripture. And you more than you understand uh, what Jesus says when he calls people to be fishers of men. You know, when I go fishing, Steve, there are certain things that I can do to increase my chances of actually catching something. Uh, like, you know, pay attention. What is this fish actually hungry for? Where is this? What is this fish's habitat? 
what matters to this fish that will get their attention? Um, this kind of thing that, I mean, if I just go and just try and reach down and yank the fish out of the water with my bare hands, no success. Uh, it kind of gives you, like the imagery of the shepherd, this idea that there's this sense that you have to be paying attention to the thing that you're uh, trying to interact with. When we see these instances of uh, the apostles fishing in the Bible, Peter's not standing on the bow of the ship with his push-button Snoopy reel and a worm and a bobber, right? Uh, you've actually been on one of those boats. Tell us a little bit about what you learned about how Peter and the apostles would have fished. Well, it, fishing today is very much like it was 2,000 years ago. There's small boats, no, about 13 feet long, maybe 5 feet wide. And although the, in the old days they're made of wood, today they're made of fiberglass. And in the old days you rowed, and today you've got a motor. But they still row today to, uh, to maneuver the boat. I went out one morning in Israel when I was there. I got up real early at 4, and I wanted to go watch the fishermen coming in. And I wanted to ask them a lot of questions, like how much, what kind of fish did you catch? How much money did you make for these fish? Are there really big waves on the sea? Why do you fish at night instead of in the, during the day? And so I found these guys... And I went up and I said, started asking them questions. I found their name was Shimi and Udi. They had just come in from a long night. Rough, tough guys, man. They were brown. They were sweaty. They smelled like fish. And I went up and started asking them questions. And they said, why do you ask so many questions? I, can't, I have work to do. We have to cut the sort of it in a very thick Hebrew accent. I could hardly understand them. He said, if you want to know all these things, then you just be here at 6 o'clock tonight and you go out fishing with us and we'll answer your questions while we're out there fishing. Well, anybody that knows me knows exactly what I did. I, w I went home, took a nap, got up that afternoon, went over there at 6 o'clock, got on the boat with them, and we took off across the Sea of Galilee up towards the northern tip where the mouth of the Jordan River is, right up where Bethsaida used to be, and that Bethsaida is the hometown of Peter, Andrew, and Philip. He went out there and caught all these fish at night. I got to ask all the questions I wanted. I found out that there are big waves, can be 9 or 10 feet high, and, and the fishermen are scared of those. They come up out of nowhere, that they fish at night because the fish are very smart, and they can see the net during the daytime, so that's a waste of time. You go out at night when they can't see the net, and they put a big net. It's about a half mile round, and they put it in a big open circle, and then they have an entrance. Each end of the net has a red kerosene lantern, so you you can find the net, and there we went fishing all night long. We also pulled in the mouth of the Jordan River to eat dinner, and they tied their boats to the to the uh, bushes along the sh uh, shore of the river. And there's about five or six other boats, and they're yelling back and forth in Hebrew. And I'm saying, "What do you say? What do you say? What?" And then they're picking their teeth with branches with little twigs they picked off. And I just thought to myself, "Oh my goodness, I'm out here with Peter, Andrew, James, and John." And I was back 2,000 years ago for that whole night. I was 2,000 years ago with the disciples out fishing. So it was really well, a great experience. I hope you weren't a smart aleck in the middle of the night and said, hey, guys, why don't we cast this on the other side of the boat? <laughs> what I did do is I started getting seasick and said, guys, I want to get out and walk on the water back to the shore over there. <laughs> well, you know, th there's so much uh, imagery about fish and fishing, including imagery used by our Lord. I wonder how... Uh, not just the Bible, but the early church looked at this image of the fish as a symbol for all kinds of things. Well, they did, and, uh, and one is a classic story of John chapter 21, where they're out fishing in the night. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's not around them all the time like he used to be. And so they say, what do you want to do? Well, let's go back to doing what we used to do. Jesus isn't around. Let's go fishing. So they, went, they didn't catch anything all night. And so Jesus comes on the shore. A hundred yards, they're out in the water. That's as long as a football field. And he calls to them and said, you catch anything? And, and they said, no, nothing. Well, that, if you can't catch anything at night, 
like I said, when the fish are blind and can't see the net, you're certainly not going to catch anything as the sun's coming up. So he says, cast your net on the other side. Well, that story, the fathers of the church saw great symbolism in that story because Jesus is standing on the shore of eternity. That represents, the Sea of Galilee represents the world. It's not our element. We're not made for the water. We're made for land. We're out in the world right now, but our ultimate home and purpose is heaven. We're out there fishing. We're to be fishers of men, so we're out there evangelizing. We're bringing people into the net. By the way, the net is the church, and if you're in the net, don't jump out. Stay in the net. They're out there fishing. That Jesus, they can't catch anything without Jesus. We can say we're an evangelist or apologist or whatever, but we can't do anything unless Jesus is there. When Jesus appears in the morning, then they catch the fish. They bring all that fish in. Peter alone drags it up onto the shore. Jesus is on the shores of eternity. After they're done in the world, the disciples and Peter, representing the papacy, bring the net full of fish, the net being the church, up to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is there to receive the church. It says that there was not a tear in the net, that, and it was making a big deal about that because it, that many, that big of a load of fish, we'll talk about that in a second, they couldn't, it was hard to bring it up, and it, there was no tear. And that word tear is the same word we get from schism. It's schizo. So there's no tear. The net is the church, but there's no schism in the church. It's one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And the fathers of the church looked at the 153 fish, and they said, well, what does that represent? Well, at the time, they thought there were 153 nations, languages, and tongues in the whole world. So what does that net represent? The church. What did they catch? All of people from every nation, language, and tongue. It's the universal church. And the Pope brings it up and lays it at the feet of Jesus without a tear in it. That's how the early church understood that story of fishing. The disciples that Jesus chose, Matt, did not smell like books and scrolls. They smelled like fish. When you even think about that, the guys who started the Church of Jesus Christ smelled like fish. And they were the ones that were to be fishers of men. And they were to go out at the net and collect all these fish and bring them in for the Lord. That was the Lord's catch. They also are to be shepherds, though, too, aren't they? Those are the two big occupations, farmers, shepherds, and fishermen. And so all the time we see all of those three images being used of evangelization. You take care of the sheep. You bring the sheep in and protect them. That's the church. You go out with a net. That's the church. And it also says that the big field, it's the the growing in the field, and the wheat grows, and that harvest, those are the people. 3,000 are added on the day of Pentecost. Jesus is a grain of wheat that goes into the ground and dies, and when it grows up, it's a hundredfold. So all of these images of of, uh, occupations and what people did in Israel are all used of the church and of evangelism. Well, I'm trying to think through whenever Jesus made dinner for people and the Bible, the only place that comes immediately to mind is that example you mentioned in John 21, when they've come ashore and Peter has dragged in that net that doesn't break, full of 153 fish all by himself. Jesus says, bring me some of those, and he cooks them. And so Jesus cooks fish over a fire for the apostles right before he says to Peter, do you love me? Three times. My movie, I made Peter Keeper of the Keys. We actually went out early in the morning, started a fire, caught fish, and I cooked them right on the shore while I told the story of John chapter 21 while we're cooking fish. So there were different ways that they would eat fish. Just interesting, in, in all of history and in the Bible, you see that they could eat it boiled. 
They stewed it, put it in casserole. Mostly, though, it was salted or smoked or broiled. In fact, from Magdala, they had 230 fishing boats in the city where Mary Magdalene came from, which is just a short five, ten-minute ride from Capernaum, ten minutes to Capernaum to Magdala. They had 230 fishing boats there, and some of the fish, the salted fish from there, were famous all the way to Rome. Rome in Rome, they talked about the salted fish from the Sea of Galilee from Magdala. So, but, and then we know also that Jesus multiplied fish. He made lots of fish on, at least twice when he multiplied loaves and fish. Those were probably smoked fish because that way you would salt it or smoke it. It would preserve it. You could carry it around without a refrigerator, and it would stay eatable for a long time. So fish was really important, and, uh, you know, a lot of people are going to go out fishing this uh, summer, so we can think a lot about the Bible and, and while we're doing that. Well, Steve, we thank you for giving us a look at what a fish represent in the Bible, the many places in the Bible where fish are mentioned, sometimes even used by our Lord to illustrate some teaching of his. So if our listeners want to connect with you, maybe learn more about some of these pilgrimages that you've been on that you were just describing, how do they do so? CatholicConvert.com, and we hope people can sign up and go with us. And I'll show you all these things. We'll go out on the Sea of Galilee. You'll see these fish, and I'll tell the whole story out there. Well, Steve, we've got you linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. I'm Matt Swaim. Thanks for listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. This past year has been a crazy roller coaster ride, but you have the power to get your business back on track by underwriting the Sunrise Morning Show. Weekday mornings, your message will reach millions of engaged Catholic listeners across the U.S. and around the globe who want to know more about and support Catholic businesses and organizations. To get national exposure for your business, ministry, or nonprofit on the Sunrise Morning Show, email me, Leah, at sacredheartradio.com. That's Leah at sacredheartradio.com. Hello, I'm Father Timothy Shear, and these are Biblical Impressions. The Apostle Paul had many associates, Titus, perhaps also Priscilla and Aquila. But how many of us could find familiar the associate named Epaphras? This unique name is probably a contraction of a longer and more common name, at least in Paul's time, Epaphroditus meaning literally, favored by the goddess Aphrodite. By the time we meet Epaphras, he has clearly regarded himself as now favored, or better, graced, by the Lord Jesus Christ. From Paul's remarks in his letter to the Colossians, it was the preaching of this associate Epaphras that got the church started in Colossae. Later in that same letter to the Colossians, Paul says of Epaphras that he is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus. He is always wrestling in his prayers on your behalf. Now, wouldn't it be grand if someone could say the same thing about us someday, that we were constantly praying on their behalf so that they might mature and be assured in everything that God wills? For Sacred Heart Radio, I'm Father Timothy Shear. It is time for Bible Foods, and our help for that every week is Rita Heikenfeld from AboutEating.com. Good morning, Rita. Well, good morning, and I think everybody's going to like the topic today. People are going to be taking copious notes today because we're talking about plants from the Bible and Bible times that repel bugs 
naturally. And don't think that just because they repel bugs, they're going to be nasty smelling to you. These are good smelling plants, including basil. Oh, yeah. You know, and the fun thing is a lot of these um, plants, these biblical specimens, are, do double duty. They're culinary herbs as well. You just mentioned basil. Not mentioned specifically in the Bible, but we know basil's a very important ancient herb. And the legend has it, I love this, Matt, that basil was found growing near Christ's tomb for the first time after his resurrection. So what you can do, if you have window boxes, um, I love to hang like a basket of basil right outside my door in a window box with just some other herbs, or even put it in a big pot. And what happens is if you pass it, just rub the leaves a little bit, and that releases those volatile oils. And basil actually helps repel black and other flies. And then I have a friend who makes a uh, basil fly repellent. She puts vanilla over cotton balls in a jar, and then she squishes some fresh basil along with some mint, and that works as a great repellent. Well, that's what we're going for here. Uh, Same with lavender. I mean, that might, bugs might hate that, but I kind of like it. Oh, I love lavender. Think of lavender mentioned in the Bible. It's, it's a lot of times it's referred to as spikenard or nard. And lavender um, is one of the best plants to repel bugs like flies and fleas and mosquitoes and even moths and gnats. And what you can do, it, it, it takes hot weather. It doesn't need much water at all. It loves sun. You can put it alongside a driveway, a walkway. And when you walk by it, your legs will brush that and that aroma wafts up against you really fragrant and it's a very good uh, bug repellent. You can also make a bug repellent out of lavender, Matt, just by simmering some uh, crushed lavender in a little water. Let's uh, talk about oregano. Uh, And oregano we've mentioned before on this Bible food segment quite a bit, actually. Oh, yeah, because some biblical scholars believe the hyssop mentioned in the Bible is actually a kind of oregano, which has always grown abundantly in the Middle East. But you know what, Matt? All oreganos, I, I call them multitaskers when it comes to insects, because oregano has something called carvacrol, and that is a natural insect repellent. And um, I'll put little pots of oregano around the sitting areas outdoors, and if I pass it, I'll rub a few sprigs in my palms just to release the bug-repelling scent. So oregano is a great culinary herb and a, a bug repellent as well. Another one we've mentioned on here a number of times is rosemary. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, Associated with Bible times, but not mentioned specifically in the Bible, pests don't like rosemary's piney aroma. You can just make a real simple insect spray, Matt. You just simmer um, equal amounts of chopped rosemary and some distilled or good water, cover it for about 30 minutes. You let that come to room temperature, still covered, so the oils don't evaporate. You just strain that rosemary um, little potion, and you put it in spray bottles. And what I do is I'll put that in the fridge, and the spray actually disinfects the air. And if you uh, make that rosemary spray, it'll keep in the fridge for a couple of weeks, really perfect for this hot weather. Now let's talk about thyme. Um, This is one that we definitely know grew in Jerusalem. Oh, yeah, gosh, it still grows abundantly in the hills of Jerusalem. You can take thyme leaves, and you can just bruise them, and that aroma makes mosquitoes scat. They don't like it at all. And of all the thyme varieties that I grow, Matt, lemon thyme is my favorite. And they say, experts too say, any herb with a lemon aroma will help repel pests. And speaking of which, a bunch of different mints are helpful in this regard as well. 
Oh, yeah. Peppermint is one of the best effective ant repellents. What I do is I keep pots of peppermint right outside my back kitchen door. Mint keeps away flies and spiders and gnats and mosquitoes, too. So I like to add some mint to the hanging baskets outside because the mint trails over the top. And just by that trailing nature, it sort of discourages those climbing and the flying insects. And you can even dry peppermint for indoor use, too. I'll make little pouches of dried mint, and I just put it in old socks. And then I'll just place them around the house. That helps keep ants and spiders, which I don't like either, from visiting. So another ancient Bible herb that's very useful. All right. So we've talked about various mints and rosemaries and thymes and oreganos. But let's talk about how if we wanted to build kind of our own bouquet or potpourri, what would be a good way to go about that? Oh, you know, you can make, before I call it my fragrant air cleansing bouquet, um, really pretty, and it's really effective against those biting insects. You can take any of the herbs mentioned. I like to take, like, basil and thyme and oregano and rosemary, and then I'll cut those, and I'll put them in a jar, but I'll cut the stems sort of at an angle so they absorb the water easily. And then when you put those herbs in the jar, you want to uh, bruise the leaves a little bit just to start releasing those oils and scents. And then I'll put um, just little bouquets, especially outside when we have people over, anywhere they're gathered. And that really does not only help cleanse the air, but keeps the insects at bay. Rita, this is such a useful segment for so many reasons. I was fishing the other night, and uh, I brought some bug spray with me, and my buddy and I were thinking, do we really want to put bug spray on our hands? Because when we bait our hook, then our fish are going to taste nothing but bug spray, and they're not going to want the bait. (laughs) For sure. Well, another, uh, chrysanthemum's a great um, repellent as well, and it's not mentioned in the Bible, but that has, I believe, something is stronger than DEET. You know, that's what they put in insect spray. So really, um, I'll put all this information on my abouteating.com site and with some photos, too, of some of the little potions. So very timely and fun. I'm Matt Swaim, and you're listening to the best of the Sunrise Morning Show. Back after this. For more than 150 years, the Komboni missionaries have traveled to nearly every corner of the world. Founded by St. Daniel Komboni, we are an international Catholic organization dedicated to ministering the world's poorest and most abandoned people. Your donations make a huge impact, and 95% are used to fund our many projects. Find out more at kombonimissionaries.org. That is kombonimissionaries.org. Central Fabricators is proud to support the Sunrise Morning Show and encourages other Catholic business owners to do the same. Central Fabricators knows that the Sunrise Morning Show is where you'll get the news from the Catholic perspective while keeping you up to date on what's happening in the Vatican as well. It's also a great way to keep in touch with the Catholic faith throughout the week. Central Fabricators, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, has been in business for more than 70 years on the web at centralfabricators.com. That's centralfabricators.com. Do you use a single brew coffee maker at your home or in your workplace? The Carmelite Monks of Wyoming have single-use coffee pods especially for you. Go to the Mystic Monk Coffee site through our site, sunrisemorningshow.com, to browse the monk shot options. When you check out, we'll earn a commission. And why not brew it straight into a Sunrise Morning Show mug or travel mug? You can find those in our online store. Buy a mug and link for some monk shots for your Keurig at sonrisemorningshow.com. EWTN offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass live every morning at 8 Eastern and provides you with daily readings to follow along and enrich your experience. 
To be sure you don't miss out on the Daily Mass or to get access to previous recordings, we can send a link to your email inbox every day. It's easy. Visit EWTN.com and click subscribe. EWTN, the Global Catholic Network. listening to a special summer edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. I'm Anna Mitchell, happy to be joined now by Amy Wellborn. She's author of many books, including many books on the saints, and you can find her blog, Charlotte Was Both, through amywellborn.com. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. It is great to have you, and we're going to be highlighting a few saints of summer so to speak, in our conversation today, a few of your favorites. So let's just jump right in. We'll start with St. Benedict, the founder of Western monasticism. His feast day is July 11th. And, you know, he's received much attention, at least uh, in, in one way, through that whole Benedict option movement, right? What do you think that Benedict teaches us about living or maybe not living in society today? Well, I think that, you know, as you say, Benedict is the father of Western monasticism, and I think it's really helpful for modern believers to understand what that means. You know, there were monks, there were people who set themselves apart from the world before Benedict, but what Benedict did was to take that urge, that movement to kind of dedicate oneself wholly to God and he created a, a way for people to do that in community. St. Anthony was a hermit, and what Benedict did was gathered people to live in community in a very ordered kind of way. And, you know, many of your listeners probably are familiar with the motto of Benedictine monasticism, Ora et Labora, mm-hmm. prayer and work. And, you know, if you're familiar with the rule, and I think it's it's wonderful spiritual reading. Lots of people read the Benedictine rule, even if they're not Benedictine, even if they're not Benedictine oblates, even if they live in the world, because it's a very wise and knowing approach just about how to live a God-centered life with other people. How do you live with other people? You know, we all sort of think that it would be a lot easier... (laughs) (laughs) to be holy if it weren't for these other people that we have to take care of and deal with and in all of their idiosyncrasies. And what Benedict does in the rule is that he provides a basis for doing that and for leading a balanced life that doesn't go too far in one direction or another. The monastic life is famous for kind of dividing the day into thirds, one-third prayer, one-third work, one-third sleep. To me, the other thing that's maybe even more kind of pertinent for today, you know, we live in a world and in a time of great uncertainty. The world is changing very quickly, and we're not going to be able to really kind of take account of this for a while. And this is sort of just the same kind of landscape that Benedict and his followers lived in in the 6th century. Um, a, a time of uncertainty, a period of time in which people's lives were, you know, threatened by various forces and so on. And what he did was to gather people and to give them a focus. And so, you know, we may not be, you know, running off to the monastery, but in our homes, in our homes, we can create, based on or inspired by Benedict, a God-centered sense of peace and order, because we know that no matter what, 
God is present, and that we can, you know, sort of create an environment which welcomes the Lord's peace, which is not centered on the stresses that are out there. Do you think society would do well to have a dose of the rule of St. Benedict these days? Oh, yeah, because, you know, not only because of the order, <laughs> mm-hmm. the fact, the order factor and the God-centered factor, but because when you do read the rule, as I said at the beginning, there is a great emphasis on how to live with other people. The rule of St. Benedict offers guidance on, first of all, just how to treat other human beings and to, you know, prioritize seeing other human beings as children of God, <laughs> as brothers in mm-hmm. his context, brothers and sisters, who may are not always right about everything, but neither are you. And so it provides a framework for how to navigate, you know, living in a diverse community centered on love. Absolutely. And well, in the interest of time, we've got to move on to our next saint that you want to highlight, St. Mary Magdalene, who celebrated on July 22nd. And you've got a whole book on her alone, Amy. What would you most want people to know about St. Mary Magdalene? Well, I think, you know, there's a lot to about the, the legends and the various stories related to Mary Magdalene, but I think, you know, the most important place to start is with what we know for sure about her, was that she was present at the empty tomb, and she was the first person that the risen Christ revealed himself to, and experienced the most hopeless moment of all, which is to see Christ, to see Jesus crucified, seemingly dead, buried, sealed in a tomb, and then that early, that one morning goes and receives the greatest news of all. You know, maybe during a time when we do have questions and feel separated and are wondering, how do I draw close to Christ without, you know, when I'm separated, um, you know, focus on a saint like Mary Magdalene. Yes, most definitely. Now let's move on to Blessed Solanus Casey, another summer saint. His feast day is July 30th, uh, one in a, a long line of holy doormen, right? And somebody who's very special to you. Yeah, I really, I think, I mean, Solanus Casey is a great saint and very important to my late husband, Mike Dubriel. Very important to him. He credited him with saving his life. He had a very bad sort of weird skidding accident uh, on an interstate one rainy night and credits at that time Venerable Solanus Casey with interceding for him and wow. preserving his life. But, you know, people just need to know his story because what we're called to do by our culture is to follow our dreams and our plans and yes. make big goals and, and achieve. And, you know, Solanus Casey had dreams. He wanted to become priest, and at every step of the way, he met, you know, huge obstacles. And his life, as it turned out, was not what he envisioned it would be at the beginning, because he was eventually ordained, but he was ordained as what used to be called a simplex priest, which means because of his sort of not great scholastic record and language issues, he was not allowed to preach or hear confessions. But, as it turned out, every place he went, Solanus Casey was given the responsibility as a Capuchin friar to be the doorman, the porter, which means he was the fellow who received visitors. But in that role, what did he end up doing? 
not hearing formal confessions, perhaps, but hearing people's stories, hearing their need for prayer, hearing their pain, hearing their suffering. And so over the decades, he encountered thousands of people, heard their stories, enrolled them in a prayer confraternity that he started, um, and, you know, of course, did many other things. I mean, people attribute many healings to him and so on, and uh, even while he was alive. And so I, I just, I love him because he's a reminder to me of when all our plans are exploded, <laughs> our plans are shot, God is still present. God probably has something better. Uh, not probably. God does, does have something better than we could have planned stored for us. And he wants to use us, and he will, no matter who we are, no matter what our position, no matter what our salary, our GPA, God will use us. If we are open to that, God will use us to touch other people. Let's move on then to uh, the final saint, well, actually pair of saints uh, with back-to-back summer feasts, St. Augustine and St. Monica. So much can be said. What is it about their relationship that is so moving? Well, I think the mother-child relationship is so elemental to all of our experiences from one direction or the other. We understand that dynamic of wanting the best for somebody and having our heart broken (laughs) when we see them going on the wrong path or we have that experience ourselves of sort of being on that journey and leaving people behind and having to come back and say, yeah, I was wrong. And so that very dramatic story, which is so beautifully told in Augustine's Confessions, is something that rings true for all of us, I think, at some level. And it's about persistence. And it's about the fact that no matter what the present holds, we don't know the end of the story. We can't, you know, and this is kind of what we've seen with all these saints, is that the present moment is the present moment, but it's not the end. Hope is a virtue, and hope doesn't mean, as a theological virtue, it doesn't mean everything's going to turn out all right (laughs) in our, you know, whatever that means. Hope means that we trust that God will bring good out of everything. And we don't know how any of our stories are going to end. The present moment is not definitive. No matter what the circumstances, no matter how strange life seems, no matter how dark life seems, our call is to trust that God indeed is present and is calling us to love. You know, he's, he's here. No matter who we are, no matter how far we've fallen, no matter how crazy the world is, God is here. And I think all these saints in their diverse lives and their you know, diverse lifestyles and the many different times that they live, they show us that sort of consistent story of God's faithfulness. I couldn't have said it any better than myself. I think that's a great place to end the conversation. We've been talking to Amy Wellborn, and she has reflections on the saints basically every day on her blog, Charlotte Was Both. You can find it at amywellborn.com, which is linked at sunrisemorningshow.com. Amy, really appreciate the time this morning. Thank you so much for these stories. Thank you for the opportunity to share. Appreciate it. All right, that'll do it for this special summer edition of the Sunrise Morning Show. For Matt Swaim and Paul Lockman, I'm Anna Mitchell. May God bless you and keep you and grant you his peace.